When you first step into the Edna Lawrence Nature Lab, you might accidentally bump into a skeleton on wheels. And then you'll notice that just a couple feet away, there is a swan frozen in mid-flight over a wooden table. Every single inch of the walls is covered in these giant cabinets that are filled to the brim with dried plants, shells. Taxidermy mammals, add insects, bugs, skeletons. Inside this room, there are thousands of specimens, of plants, of animals. They hang from the ceiling, they're tucked in cabinet shelves, and secreted away in sliding metal drawers. And why would you have all that? Well, partly it was a reference for drawing and for art. And I think that one of the most interesting things to study is life, just life in all different types of life and how they're all connected. The Nature Lab kind of distills all of that in a single room. As part of the Rhode Island School of Design, the Edna Lawrence Nature Lab isn't there just to teach art students how to draw. It's there at least in part to help teach them how to see, how to look at the world with new eyes. And uh, what it really does is helps you see what you wouldn't have otherwise seen, to look at the world with the eyes of a child, the eyes of wonder, curiosity. And I think that the Nature Lab is this way where it takes this world and it just, I don't know, it, it, it distills this entire planet into a room. It's pretty cool. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, I am talking with Brian Chesky, the founder and CEO of Airbnb, about how those design experiences, places like the Edna Lawrence Nature Lab, shaped his work at Airbnb, and why art and design students might be better suited to help build the future than MBAs. More after this. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I don't know if you've noticed, but this podcast is not a business podcast. And so when you hear Brian Chesky, CEO of Airbnb, it sounds like we're going to talk about capital B business. And of course, Airbnb is a huge and successful company, including, uh, full disclosure, they are also an investor in Atlas Obscura. But part of why I wanted to talk to Brian and what brought Atlas Obscura and Airbnb together in the first place was a similar shared approach to business, which is to say, starting fundamentally as outsiders to that world. 
I think of myself probably as a designer more than anything. I mean, you know, I think I'm technically a business person, an entrepreneur. That's the label I would have. So I certainly identify as an entrepreneur. So I think of myself as like an artist or designer turned business person running a company, I suppose. And I think that affects a lot of um, how I see the world. I remember when I um, I went to Rhode Island School of Design and I remember a teacher saying, you're a designer. Everything around you is designed by other people. You can kind of design the world that you live in. And I think that's kind of basically a like basic part of my life philosophy. Yeah, I, I want to get to that. Uh, but before we do, I also want to ask about the location you're in currently. Where You look like you're in a nice place. Where are you in the world? Yeah, yeah. So I'm in Atlanta. I'm in a host home, uh, a woman named Kimberly. Um, she actually lives next door. She has, um, she's a family and she hosts this home. It's a really cool design home. I have to imagine it must feel good like all of us just to be in a different environment, to not be where you've been mostly for the last couple of years. I always had this like desire before the pandemic, but never thought it would ever happen where I said, you know, it'd be really cool like to just literally, I used to say this kind of live on Airbnb going like in a different town or city every like every month. But I never thought I'd ever do that. Cause I'm like, well, I yeah. would have to like take an at leave of absence from Airbnb for a year to do that. Yeah. And then obviously the pandemic happened and suddenly I realized with a laptop and an internet in someone else's home, I could run a giant company. And suddenly yeah. if I can do that, I can do that from anywhere. And I think millions of people are doing this. You know, obviously not everyone can do this. It, you know, everyone's life circumstances are a little different, but you know, millions of people I think are like, you know, living on Airbnb or if they're not living nomadically, that's a little extreme. They're kind of taking long weekends, they're going away for the summer. They're doing, they have the flex, they have flexibility they wouldn't have had before. And so it is quite a fun adventure, to be honest. It's really cool. Yeah. My, my family spent a month this summer in Minneapolis just to be close to my, my parents. And we drove out there and we drove back and, and we stayed in an Airbnb. And oh, that's so, awesome. Yeah, I relate to, to that uh, strongly. How did you choose Atlanta out of, out of curiosity? Why, why Atlanta? I was actually coming here already before I'd chosen to like definitively live on Airbnb because a childhood friend of mine from Niskina in New York lives in Atlanta. So I told mm. him I'd come visit him. I hadn't seen him in quite a long time. And I kind of had in my mind that I would live on Airbnb. I was like starting to think about it. I'm like, you know what? I should just start right now. It, I didn't plan this. Like I didn't like premeditate <laughs> this for months. It was a weekend and I thought, wait, I guess I don't have to go back to San Francisco. Mm. And within a day I was suddenly living on Airbnb. And then I went on Twitter and I said, you know what? Um, I am uh, no longer uh, permanently living in San Francisco. I'm now living in Airbnb. I'll be staying in a different home every couple weeks or so. And so for now, my home, I'll be coming back to San Francisco, but for now, my home is an Airbnb somewhere. The story of how Brian Chesky and his co-founders started Airbnb has become mythic, classic startup lore. Three broke guys living in an apartment in San Francisco offer up an air mattress in their living room as a rentable place to crash. The rest is history. There's a ton more to that story. But I was interested in what happened before that, how growing up in rural New York and attending a school that considers having a room of skeletons and natural specimens deeply valuable impacted what came later in Brian's life. A lot of stories about you and Airbnb obviously start with the apartment and the air mattresses, but I want to sort of go before that to when you were still at, uh, at RISD, at art school. Can you tell me about uh, where you went 
uh, to college and why you went there? I was really interested in art and design growing up. You know, I was the kid that asked Santa for poorly designed Christmas toys so I could redesign them. And so I remember my mom growing up, my mom was a social, both my parents were social workers growing up. And so, you know, we were kind of like middle class, but, you know, my mom told me one day um, when I was a kid, I'll never forget this. She said, I chose a job for the love and I didn't really make a lot of money. So you should choose a job that pays you a lot of money. That was like kind of her life and lesson, one of her life lessons trying to impart on me. And so one day I told my mom, I said, I've, I decided I want to be an artist. And she said, oh my God, you chose the only <laughs> job that will pay less than a social worker. You're going to like, you're going to literally make nothing and you're going to live in my basement. And I said, I'm not going to live in your basement. I promise I'm going to get a job. She goes, if you get a job, it has to be a real job. And I go, what's a real job? She goes, a real job is a job that has health insurance. So I said, sure, I will get a real job at health insurance. So that was kind of a commitment I made in exchange for going to art and design school. I got to RISD and it was a completely different environment from where I grew up in high school because, you know, in high school, you know, I mean, mostly, you know, most education systems um, are, tr you know, they're trying to kind of educate you to conform and fit into society, you know, and not be too disruptive and be productive. You get to RISD and they're kind of trying to maybe in a sense uneducate you out of that. They're trying to educate you to think differently, to be a very different kind of individual. And so when I got to RISD, I, uh, I just thought it was like the most unbelievable experience. And, you know, I was the artist in my high school. To, so to suddenly be surrounded by 2,000 artists or a th over 1,000 artists was pretty amazing. At RISD, Brian studied industrial design. And every week he had to present his designs in critiques, which involved defending and explaining his projects. And to Brian, this skill set of creative thinking along with defending your solutions to others, convincing them that you're correct, is critical, but tend to get overlooked in more traditional business environments. If you look at the Fortune 500, look at how many CEOs went to art and design school in the Fortune 500. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know if there's any. So <laughs> there might be. If there, if, you, if there are more than two out of 500, I'd be shocked. I'd be surprised yeah. if there's one. Maybe there's one. Um, ask how many uh, members of the board of directors of a Fortune 500 company are designers or creative people, self-identified creatives. Very few. So then ask how many people on the executive teams of these companies are designers or creative people. There aren't many. Go to government and ask how many people in the largest of kinds of the world in the administrations are creative people or designers or have this background. There aren't many. And then ask, are all these people in positions of power going to require creativity and creative thinking to solve their problems? It's hard to deny that. And so there, therein lies a gap. Therein lies an opportunity. I think that you know, historically, you know, I think a lot of designers or design-led people and creative people um, have not been, uh, haven't have not had a seat at the table. And I hope that the lesson people learn is not just the Airbnb was this quirky story. Um, we got lucky. There was luck involved. We worked hard. But I hope it's also the story of creative thinking. I think certainly that's mm -hmm. the, probably the truth, the story of your company. It's certainly the story of our company. And I hope more and more creative people learn that story. Because I think the problem with designers and creative people is that they're often advocating for their function, right? A CFO doesn't have to advocate for the importance of finance, right? A engineer usually doesn't have to advocate for the importance of technology. Like everyone knows money matters. Everyone knows technology matters. 
But a lot of creative people find themselves continually advocating for their function in their field inside of corporations or governments or large places of power. And I think it behooves not just, we shouldn't empower creatives just for their sake. We should empower creatives for the sake of society. So, you know, for the last almost 15 years, since you were in your mid-20s, Airbnb has been really like your whole world. Um, it's a lot It's a lot to carry. It can be heavy to try and lead an organization and certainly an organization of, of that scale. Do you sort of feel like you still recognize the the art kid, the design kid at, at RISD? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> on the one hand, it's a long way from home, what I do now. Um, you know, I, it's the whole story is just so crazy. I, I <laughs> if you had, if you had asked me or told me that this would be my life when I was growing up in Niskin in New York, or when I was a designer carrying around an 18 by 24 inch newsprint, uh, kind of sketch pad, um, drawing figure drawing that I would be doing what I'm doing now, running a, you know, company that housed four and a half million people over New Year's Eve, you know, I would never have imagined that. But in a, in a larger sense, maybe it makes complete sense. I think it would have taken somebody from RISD to maybe do Airbnb because Airbnb is both a technological endeavor, but it's also a sociological endeavor. It's a creative yeah. endeavor. It's not merely a technological advancement. What we invented at the larger sense wasn't a way to book a house. It was a system of trust that allowed strangers to trust one another. To yeah. me, these were design problems. And I think that there's something pretty special about Airbnb, which is this. The more people that are different than each other interact online, I feel like the more they actually seem to repel each other, right? No one's ever <laughs> changed someone else's mind in the YouTube comment section. And I think, you know, your Instagram followers, most of them are not showing up to your funeral. They probably won't have a lot to say. And so I think there's a lesson here. And the lesson is that, you know, face-to-face -face human contact is important. And uh, it's hard to hate someone else up close. And when you walk in their shoes, stay in their home and live their lives, you'll realize the other isn't so other, that we're 99.9% .9 the same, that we spend a lot of energy celebrating the 0.1% that makes us all different. But... And I think that's good to a point, but it's got its risk. And, uh, you know, I, I, I hope that Airbnb in a larger sense, you know, by people living in different homes, traveling the world can be reminded of our common humanity and that we're not actually that different. And if you do think that, then just try living in another community. You'll be surprised they're not that different. And yeah. I think that's so important. And I hope the more people use Airbnb, the more they trust one another. And, you know, I think that's going to be a very important currency for this future. Thanks to Brian Chesky for talking with me today. As a side note, Airbnb has waived all the fees currently for booking in Ukraine. That means if you'd like to book an Airbnb in Ukraine as a way of sending money directly to a Ukrainian person, all of that money will go to the host. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes... 
Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Sarah Kaplan, Baudelaire Seuss, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore, Casey Holford, Peter Clowney. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one.